Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verses 1 through the first part of 17. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you to me, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Susan. Oh, Susan, thank you. Not good morning, Susan. Good morning, Susan. How are you? Glad to have you back. Susan's been in Israel. Uh, it's good to have her back. But good morning to all of you as I collect my thoughts here. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, it's so good to see all of you here this morning. I love this time of year with the flowers up here that are pretty and the candles and all those kinds of things. So it's always good to be able to celebrate uh, together. We are in the middle of a series that we started this fall, walking through the entire Old Testament. Uh, the story of God is what we're calling it, and we've come to this pivotal, pivotal story, pivotal part of the story 
uh, where God comes to his people in their slavery in Egypt. They've fallen under the harsh rule of a foreign king in Egypt and been forced into slavery there. And yet what we see yet again here this morning is that God has chosen this man Moses, and Moses is going to be his servant through which he is going to deliver his people in this dramatic act of salvation. Now it mirrors in many ways what we celebrate at Christmas. That's why we've chosen to take these four or five Sundays uh, around Advent to talk about uh, this, this story and to try to reflect on how it points us to what God has ultimately come to do in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, which we celebrate uh, during the Christmas season. Now, this morning, I just want to I I take this, this image of slavery and kind of dissect it together. Okay, remember, kids, I told you, when you hear the word exodus... Oh, they're not in here this morning, I forgot. But, but those of you, okay, older kids and those of you who are young at heart, when you hear the word exodus, you're to, you're to think of the word rescue. It's God's rescue of his people. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I want to ask these three questions. What are we rescued from? How does this passage teach us what it is that God, in, God, in saving us, what is God coming to rescue us from? Uh, and you're going, to see, you're going to see the image of the exodus and slavery there that's going to be important. Secondly, not only what are we rescued from, but what are we rescued for? And then lastly, how is it, what are the mechanics, or how is it that God ultimately comes to do this great work in and for and through us? Okay, so what are we rescued from? What are we rescued for? And finally, how? So let's look at this, this, this image of slavery here, okay? Why the exodus? Let's start with that. Now, here's a summary statement I want to give you. Rescue, uh, the exodus or God's salvation is a rescue from the misery and slavery of serving anything in your life as more important than God. Let me say that again. God's salvation, which happens here, but also happens at the cross of Jesus and and in in Jesus' person and work as he comes into the world to save us, is rescue from the misery and slavery of serving anything in your life as more important than God. The implication being, if you're serving anything in your life as more important than God, it is misery and slavery. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, it might seem weird to you to hear Christians talk about being saved, right? I I always think of the, the Mandy Moore film that was put together a few years back, Saved, right, about the Christian high school and the principal, which is like a glorified youth pastor doing backflips into the assembly and, you know, whoop, whoop, the whole Arsenio Hall thing, which is just ridiculous. And so it might seem a little silly. And that word has obviously been co-opted and used in ways that probably aren't helpful. But if you want to understand what the Christian doctrine of salvation means, there's no better place in the entire Bible to go than this story of the Exodus. Because this, what happens, we're going to see unfold in the next few weeks, This is the defining moment of God's salvation in the whole Old Testament scriptures. And Christians believe that this historical event is an image or an illustration of what Jesus Christ has come down into the world to do in and for each of us personally. Now the problem that we see here at the beginning of this book is that Israel has fallen under the power of a foreign king. They're being oppressed. They've been made to work in... Uh, they've been made into a workforce for all of Pharaoh's building projects. They're slaves. And so in chapter 1 last week, we read that the Egyptians ruthlessly, this is verses um, 11 and 12 of chapter 1, the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly acted to make them work as slaves. Now, the actual translation, if you just if you consistently translated 
there's a word that's there about five or six times. And, and if you consistently translated the word the same way, the actual translation would sound something like this. They made their lives bitter with hard service and in all kinds of service in the fields and all their service, they ruthlessly made them serve as servants. Or you could say they made their lives bitter with hard slavery and all kinds of slavery in the field and all of their slavery, they ruthlessly made them slave as slaves. And it's the same word over and over again and it's so repetitive that the translations supplement synonyms to make it read better. And it's meant by the original author of this material to shock you as you read it because here are the chosen people of God, the children of Abraham who've been set apart as God's instrument in the world belonging to him alone. And yet, here they are having fallen under the power and dominion of a foreign king and being forced to serve his purposes and agenda. They're not free. They're meant, remember, we've seen this, they're meant to be God's servants. But they're not building God's kingdom. They're building tombs and statues for a king who's not even mentioned in the text and has since passed out of living memory. And it's shocking. Now, I, um, there's, a, there's a movie out uh, in the theaters now that I actually went to see uh, a couple weeks ago. It's called 12 Years a Slave. And I don't know if you've, if you've had a chance to, if you've looked at it, it's very highly, uh, the critics love it, and it's, uh, it's very powerful. And one of, the, one of the guys in our preaching meeting told me about it, and so I went to try to see it kind of in prep for knowing how we were going to be talking about these things. But it's the story of a man named Solomon Northrup who was born free in the north in the 1840s but was kidnapped and sold back into slavery in the south in the, 18, in the 1840s just prior to the Civil War. And he was there for 12 years and was made to slave in the plantations of, of Louisiana for 12 years until he was finally rescued and brought back to his family. And, uh, and, you know, it is such a scourge upon our society that we shy away from even the idea of, of how gripped our nation was only 150 years ago by this terrible, terrible social institution. And I went to this movie, and it was just overwhelming to me as an illustration of the helplessness and the utter powerlessness and despair of the people uh, that found themselves being oppressed and, uh, and held in captivity by this great evil. And, and, and so, I, you know, I only mention that to say that this kind of slave, our, our cultural equal sign to this, and yet it's completely inaccessible for about 95% of us in this room unless we work really, really hard. Uh, the, the slavery they've fallen under here is very similar to the slavery African Americans were subjected to in our culture only 150 years ago, and it is and it, it is meant to evoke this sense of utter hopelessness and powerlessness and despair uh, that were experienced by so many uh, in both of those situations. Now, you might ask, okay, but what does this have to do with me? And here's the connection I want to draw in the New Testament in Romans chapter six. The Apostle Paul is describing God's salvation, and he says that before God saved us, in our natural state of being, every single one of us in this room, without God's intervention, Paul says we were slaves to sin. Like Israel and Egypt, we were under a power and a dominion, the power and the dominion of sin and evil. In other words, sin is not, according to the Bible, it's not just doing bad things. Sin is a power that puts us under its thumb. And when Paul says that outside of Christ we are slaves to sin, he means that's what's wrong with human society. The reason things are such a mess for so many of us is because we're under sin's power and we're trapped there. 
We're shackled to our selfishness and greed and evil desires so that we can't serve God. We can't make the right decisions. We can't say no to the things that we know are killing us like cheeseburgers and jelly donuts, right? Or whatever it might be for you. We know these things are absolutely destroying us, but we are powerless against their work in our life. That there is a power at work that produces cravings and desires that we can't overcome without outside help. And we're completely trapped, just as helpless and powerless as the Israelites here and as slaves in the South in the 1840s. That's the picture. That's the Christian doctrine of sin. Now that we're pretty good people, we just kind of do a couple bad things every now and then on bad days. We are slaves to sin under the power and the dominion of evil. And there's a principle that gets worked out here that I want to really, I want to really dive, in together, uh, dive into together this morning for a few minutes. And it's just this, that if you serve anything or anyone but God, you're a slave. That's what we're, being, that's what we're learning In other words, you're only free if you're serving God. If you're serving anyone or anything else, you're in slavery. Slavery to sin. This is what what we're being taught here. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, God designed humans... He said, well, he, he said, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. In other words, the only way we work... It's as if God is at the center of our lives, if he is our joy and our beauty, if he's what we're living for. So the condition of sin, then, see, it's not, sin's not doing a couple of bad things on a bad day. It's a condition. The condition of sin is this perpetual looking to something else or someone else and trying to build your life on that thing or that person instead of God. If you're reading the Jesus Storybook Bible for Advent with us, and I hope you are, you read the account of the fall from Genesis 2 this week. And here's how Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it. She says, God knew that if Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they would think that they didn't need him, and they would try to make themselves happy without him. But God knew there was no such thing as happiness without him, and life without him wouldn't be life at all. Now, she plagiarized that. I hate to, like, burst your bubble, right? Even the Jesus Storybook Bible stole things. She plagiarized it from C.S. Lewis who said we are built to find our happiness in God, that he's like gasoline and we are the engine, and without him there's only breakdown. But we go on trying, looking for something to run our lives on other than him, as if there is a happiness apart from him that we can find. And here's the problem. Unless you're serving God, unless you're building your life on him, unless you're absolutely centered on him so that he is your source of joy and hope, In happiness, not only will your life not work, you'll be like a car trying to drive around on water instead of gas. Not only that, but you'll be a slave. Anything you center your life on more than God makes you a slave. You become enslaved to that thing, that person, that desire, whatever it might be. You come under its power and control. Because let's be honest, everybody's living for something. Something that you would say, I have to have that. And if I have it, I'm safe. Or if I have it, I'm secure. Or if I have it, I'm a somebody. But anything that you must have to feel good about your life or about yourself, your heart is a slave to that thing. You'll be chained to it, and you won't be free. You'll be driven by your sinful desire to do all kinds of foolish things. So let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, And just a couple. And I know typically when I say that, I typically go to the same ones, and it's because I'm just working on my own heart. 
right? And so I've got to kind of go to the things that are that are real to me. But maybe maybe a good example of, of how something you might give your your you know if you're serving something, maybe it's, it's your kids or your family or some relationship. But for this church, let's stick with kids, okay? So maybe you make your kids your source of happiness and joy, and what happens? You become a slave. You become a slave to their happiness or to their success. And, of course, see, this will produce all kinds of bad things, right? You'll, this is what I see a lot, um, and a temptation in me, too, is you can overparent your children and crush them like Lenny in mice, of Mice and Men who squeezes the animals to death because he loves them so much and he doesn't want them to get away. The Bible calls that exasperating your children. Or... You just live full of anxiety and fear about their future or angry, you know, at other people who block them, whether it be their teachers, can I get an amen, teachers, or coaches, or whatever it might be. And just there's all kinds of dysfunction that erupts out of this idolatrous notion of trying to build your life on your children, as silly as it might sound. If not kids, maybe money, right? If you make money your rock, Instead of the Lord, you'll become a slave to it. You'll serve it. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 6? Can't serve both God and money. Jesus says the implication there is that money is a master. It's a spiritual power that's vying for control of your heart and life. And if you look to money to provide for you, if you look to it to make you feel safe, you'll become a slave to it. You won't be free. You won't live generously towards other people. You'll overwork. You'll choose success at work and the material gain that comes from it over time with your family or just personal happiness and again you'll be anxious and full of fear and it's because you've become a slave and so the warning signs whatever it might be it may not be kids it may not be money it may be whatever it might be the warning signs of anger and despair and anxiety which are the opposite of things like peace and joy and patience these emotions tell on you if you trace them back you can begin to see places where you've given your heart to something other than the lord and you've become a slave And you're killing yourself trying to serve these masters. And yet, no matter how hard you try to hold on to them, you can't seem to get a good grip. And they are always in danger of letting you down. And it's utter emotional chaos. And Tim Keller, who I've learned a lot from about these sorts of things, says that what's happening when you feel these emotions is that there's something in your life that you thought was a rock. And what's happening is is it's turning out to be paper mache. And that's where the anxiety and the fear and the despair and the anger come from. Now, if that is what God saves us from, see, God is coming to deliver his people from their slavery in Egypt. And if we are slaves to sin, then we would say God is coming to deliver us from our slavery to sin. But if that is what he's saving us from, then secondly, this morning, we also have to talk talk about what he is saving and rescuing us for. What is it that he accomplishes then? If, what's the opposite of what we're talking about, in other words, okay? What is it that he accomplishes in the Exodus? What's, what's his goal in all that he's doing here in these beginning chapters of the book of Exodus? And it's right there in chapter 3, verse 12. And you can see it there. I want you to look. God said to Moses, I'll be with you. And when, I, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall come back to this mountain we're on, and you shall serve me on this mountain, Okay? So God's goal and everything he's doing to bring his people out is that they would ultimately be free to worship and to serve him. In our natural inclination, we are slaves to sin. But what God does in rescuing us is he is destroying 
sin's power and hold over us. He breaks the chains, the idolatries, and the desires that are holding us in bondage, and he sets us free so that we can love and serve him, so that he becomes our rock and our joy, our source of strength and security. And I, you know, that is something far more vast and comprehensive than the typical evangelical doctrine of salvation, which says something like, just pray this prayer, you get to go to heaven when you die, it's completely irrelevant if there's any change in your life. No. In the Bible, God's salvation means freedom. God is coming down to set his people free. And if you're a Christian, that means that you've had a subjective, personal experience that mirrors the experience of the Israelites in this story. Okay? God has set you free. But what we have to be careful about is when we hear that word freedom, we immediately think something like, well, freedom means having no master at all. I mean, freedom means being able to, to choose to live my life however I, however I want. And we break into, you know, Labo, Labo, the, the song uh, in Rent. I can't remember the name now, but, you know, there you go. La Viva Bill Bohem or whatever it is. Thank you. I could count on Erica for that, right? We gather around the table and we say, isn't it great? There's, we can do whatever we want to, right? I mean, we can live however we want. And there's no rules. There's no right and wrong. Nobody can tell us that we're doing it wrong, and that's simply not the case at all. God does not say... And freedom, see, is not cast in that vein. God does not say, let my people go so they can live their life however they want to. What's he say? He's let let my people go so that they might be free to worship and serve me. And if you serve anything or anyone other than God, you'll be a slave. Every other master will enslave you, but the only way to be truly free, right? The fish is not free to, to do anything he wants to if he's out of water. The only way to be truly free is to be a person who's been freed from their slavery to sin in order to serve and worship God. A life of obedience to God's commands and sacrifice and worship is freedom. And that's the lesson Moses is learning. Remember, the main part of this story, this passage here, is the encounter that Moses has with the Lord over the issue of obedience and worship. Moses is minding his own business, right? Looking after his father-in-law's sheep, we're told in verse 1, and God comes to him and he commissions him. And let's be honest, Moses isn't too happy about it. And the whole scene is about Moses becoming a worshiper, about Moses becoming God's servant, right? Saying yes to God's mission. And there are two things that drive uh, this, this reality home in, in Moses' ex- experience of the Lord here. And the first is uh, that he is given a name. And the second is that he's given an image to explain how this whole thing works. Okay, so let's look at those in turn first. God reveals his name to Moses, okay? So Moses says, when I go to the people down there in Egypt, they're going to ask me who who sent me, and I need need something. God, I've got to tell them something. Can you give me something? And, of course, the Lord says, well, tell them, I am that I am has sent you. And then he goes on to say that, that, that Yahweh, or what later becomes Jehovah, the Lord, right, when you see that name Lord capitalized in your Bible, it's this Yahweh or Jehovah, the I am that I am. And the name refers to what Christian theology calls God's eternity and his self-existence and his self-sufficiency. Now, that's a mouthful. By eternity, we mean that the only verb that goes with God is, is. Right? Okay, the name itself is a, is a form of the verb to be. In other words, you, you don't say God was because, because God never was, right? Does that make sense? Or you wouldn't say God will be because God isn't will be. God is ever 
always is. He's the ever-present is. The only verb that goes with the noun God is, is, because of his eternity. But it also, also not only does it mean that God has no beginning or ending, it also is an expression of his self-existence, which means that God has no other cause. He depends upon nothing for his existence. Everything depends upon him. And also... It has reference to his self-sufficiency, which means not only is there no beginning and ending in him, not only does he need, not only does he depend upon nothing for his existence, but there's also no need in him. He is the fuel that we were made to burn. We need him the way a car needs gas, but he doesn't need anything. In the recent Clash of the Titans epic movies, which are terrible in comparison to the old claymation awesome version of the 80s. Zeus and the pantheon of the Greek gods have become weak because they need the worship of human beings, and they've lost it. Their power is dependent upon humanity's love, and I was afraid that that might be inaccessible to some of you, so I I likened it. Their power is dependent upon humanity's love in the same way Santa's sleigh is dependent upon Christmas spirit and elf which you might be able to connect with better. We're a simple crowd around here, right? Right, without Christmas spirit, the sleigh won't run. Without humanity's worship and devotion, the gods are weak. But I am that I am isn't like that. He has no beginning and end. He depends upon nothing for his existence. He has no need of anything outside of himself. But practically, practically I think his name I am that I am means something like this. And this is the point I think he's trying to prove to Moses. Moses, my name is not I am who you want. It's I am who I am. In other words, Moses, I don't exist for you. You exist for me. My life doesn't revolve around you. Your life revolves around me. That's the only way this is going to work, see? And so there's a name. But not only does Moses get a name here, he also gets an image. And the image is the burning bush. And this, of course, is very, very uh, familiar if you're familiar with the Bible at all. So on the one hand, we see there in this bush that's on fire, but the bush is not consumed. So on one hand, here yet again, God is revealing himself as a God of fire, just as he did in Genesis 15 with the flaming pots passed through the pieces, if you were here just as he will on on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, just as he did in the wilderness as he leads his people as a pillar of fire, or as he's revealed in Hebrews as a consuming fire. He is a God of fire, that is of power and a certain destructiveness. But notice, the bush is on fire, but the bush is not consumed. And that's what amazes Moses, that the bush isn't fuel for the fire. So while it illustrates God's self-sufficiency, his transcendence, his otherness it also hints at his compassion and his tenderness here he is and got a fire in the bush but the bush is not consumed in other words because he doesn't need us he can love us and here's the application i want to make this is what we need this is what we've been made for this kind of experience we need God's presence. He doesn't need us, but we need him. This is what Moses is learning, that we're made for a life of worship and obedience and intimacy with God. He doesn't need us, but we need him the way the car needs gas, the way the flower needs sunshine. We can't do life without him. He's the fuel we were made to burn. 
And there's no use trying to find a happiness apart from him because there is no such thing. And so that brings us to the third point, and that is how. How does God go to work on our behalf then here? And immediately you see the problem, don't you? There's a tension. We're made to serve and worship him. We're made to live in God's presence and walk and talk with him and for his words to be like food and drink. All that is wrong in our lives is because that communion and fellowship with him has been disrupted and we've turned to other things. We are the flower and his presence is like the sun and the rain. But remember the story we've been telling. What happened? Adam and Eve sinned and humanity has been sinning ever since. And the consequence we read in Genesis chapter 3 was we've been shut out from the presence of God. Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden and there were cherubim that were set up with flaming swords to guard the entrance back in. And so there's this sense of God is at a distance from us now. And you see it here in this story when God calls to Moses from the bush and Moses answers, here am I, verse 4. And then look what God says next in the very next sentence. Do not come near. Take off your sandals. For the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And I would have you know that everywhere in the Bible when people meet with the Lord face to face, it's very similar to this. But look what God says, don't come near. You can't come near here. You have to stay away from me, right? Take off your shoes, a sign of reverence and humility. Moses Moses, as a result of this experience, is afraid and he hides its face and he should be afraid. And these are all, see, these are all clues that we were made to live in God's presence, but we're shut out. And no amount of moral or spiritual reformation can make us fit to come near. If sin is spiritual slavery, then Christianity has to be something more than just a self-help project. And in that movie that I referenced a little while ago, 12 Years a Slave, My favorite scene in the whole film was at the very end, after 12 years, this man is finally rescued from his slavery and reunited with his family, and he walks into the living room, and there's his son, who was a small child when he left and is now grown, and there's his daughter, who was maybe eight or nine, and now she's grown, and there's his grandson, and all these things have happened, and he's been through this horrible ordeal, and yet there they are in the parlor of this house, and he begins to weep, and he gathers his family to himself, and he begins to apologize. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Uh, and, and it just struck me that here's this man who's been through all of this terrible stuff, and yet he still doesn't understand. He still thought somehow he was wrong. He still thought he didn't try hard enough, that the solution to his problem was him. And he, fa- he should have found a way back to his family before now. That it, and his family has to reassure him over and over again, it's okay, you didn't do anything wrong, this is not your fault. And it was just an interesting picture of moralism to me, that if sin is spiritual slavery, then the solution is not for me to try harder, it's not for me to go to work on myself, it's not a, a self-help project. It doesn't matter how hard I try, if sin is spiritual slavery, then the only hope, I, I need help from the outside. Somebody's got the only way that man was going to get out of his circumstances was he got a letter out, and the letter went to his family, and his family called the the, the governor of the state, and they came in and they basically had to overthrow this plantation to get him out of there. He needed help from the outside, and so do we. And so, if what we need is God's presence, but we're shut out and can't come near, how do we get it? And here's the marvelous truth that this passage opens up to us: the truth that I think Christmas make, makes plain that we can celebrate. Okay, we, we need God the way the flower needs the rain, but we cannot come near to him 
because of our sin. And so he is determined to come near to us. Look at verse 7, where the Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. See, we can't get near to God, so he has to come near to us. God is coming down. God is coming near. And one of the undeniable truths of this passage is that God's presence comes through a mediator or representative it's very important to understand because of how it points us to Christmas. Here, the encounter is mediated with, through the angel of the Lord, verse 2. This mysterious figure who's in the flame, who talks as if he's God, and yet is treated as if he's not quite God, who many people see the, as the pre-incarnate Christ. Okay, he's mediating God's presence, but the whole force of the passage is that God is making Moses his mediator, his go-between, his person with whom he's going to gather his people to meet with them. So Moses' ministry will define God's presence among his people. He will speak for God. He will act for God. Presence will be, God's presence will be represented in this one man. And here's where you can see the passage turning us towards Christmas. God coming down to visit his people through Moses' ministry points us to Jesus. Let me explain. There's a part of the story that I didn't read goes something like this. Though, though, through a series of unfortunate events, or excuse me, of fortunate events, Moses is adopted as a child of the daughter of Pharaoh and is raised in the royal palaces of Egypt. And yet, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, he, he says, by faith Moses rather, rather, chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. In other words, there was an event in Moses' life. He saw one of his fellow Israelites being mistreated at the hands of, of one of the Egyptian taskmasters. He killed the Egyptian, and in doing so, as Hebrews said, he made himself one with, he chose to side with the people of God, that though he was royalty, he forsook the glory and the comforts and the riches of the palace to be numbered among the slaves in order to rescue them from their slavery. Now listen, in Philippians chapter 2, God says this about Jesus Christ, that though he was God, he did not count his equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, made himself nothing, that means, by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. Like Moses, Jesus was raised in a royal palace. Yet Paul says that he forsook the glory and the comfort and the riches of heaven to come down and to come into our world to rescue us. But look again. Paul says he, he emptied himself, he made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant. And that word servant is the same word, by taking the form of of a slave. Now, as terrible and as frightening as the stories and the images of slavery are, can you imagine? Can you imagine with me for a minute? Can you imagine a free person, a wealthy, connected, powerful, free person who would willingly lay aside his freedom and his comfort and his wealth and sell himself into slavery in order to be there with the other slaves in order to rescue them and bring them out? And yet, that is exactly what God has done in Jesus Christ. B.B. Warfield wrote a sermon about the Incarnation, which is marvelous. You can probably find it online. And he said this, he said, God took no thought of himself. He took such thought for us that he made no account of himself. And into the immeasurable calm of the divine blessedness, he permitted this thought to enter, I will die for men. And so mighty was his love, so colossal his divine purposes to save, that he thought nothing of his divine majesty, but absorbed in us our needs, our misery, 
our helplessness, he made no account of himself and was led by his love for others into the world to forget himself and the needs of others, to sacrifice self once and for all on the altar of sympathy. In other words, in Jesus Christ, God has literally physically come down. The way he says it here in Exodus chapter 3, I'm coming down. In Jesus, God has come down. And in Matthew's gospel in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus' birth was the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy about the birth of a child who would be called by the name Emmanuel, which means, of course, what? God with us. Jesus is not just the mediator of God's presence the way Moses was for Israel. He is God. He is God with us. And the Apostle John in his letter said, We saw him with our eyes, we heard his words, we touched him with our hands. That old line in the Amy Grant Christmas song, When Mary bent to kiss her child, she was kissing the face of God. That is amazing. But I want you to see one last thing. Also in this work, we see the coming together of the fire of God's holiness and also the compassion of his love. God said to Moses, don't come near, because he knew that if Moses came near, he would be consumed. But listen to the writer of Hebrews. In Hebrews 4, he says, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And that's almost the exact opposite of God's instructions to Moses in Genesis 3. We can come near and not be consumed. I mean, that's the good news. Because of what God has done in Jesus, we can come near and not be consumed. Moses couldn't, but we can. And the reason is is that on the cross, Jesus, our mediator, became our sin, and the fire of God's wrath consumed him. It burned him up, and he was consumed. And that's why in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, the fire of God again comes down upon the church, but they aren't consumed, just like the burning bush in this story. And it's a picture of the Christian life. So let me just apply this in two ways. Kids are coming back in. Y'all hang out back there for just one more second, and I'll be done. Let me apply it in two ways. The first way is just this. If this becomes real to your heart, when Christmas begins, when the reality and the, the, the true meaning of Christmas begins to really explode in your heart, there are a couple things that can happen. First, you can become a burning bush. The glory of God can come into your life, and you can become the kind of person that, takes, that people take notice of, that people turn aside to see. The fire of God can rest upon you and you won't be consumed, right? Like the church on the day of Pentecost. Where there's fear, you can be confident. Where there's sadness, you can have joy. Where there's low self-esteem, there can be inner joy and peace. Whatever it might be, God's power and his glory can come down upon your life. And secondly, the implication of God's presence with us in Jesus is what it means for you to live like that would be that he would give you a ministry of presence. Listen again to B.B. Warfield and then I'm done. In other words, what, what Christmas, the fact that God has come, near, come, come down and come near to us in Jesus Christ would mean that we would be a people that would live giving the gift and the ministry of presence to others. Listen to what B.B. Warfield says, and then I'm going to pray. Self-sacrifice brought Christ into the world, and the same love will lead us as followers, not away from, but into the midst of men. Wherever men suffer, there we will be to comfort. Wherever men strive, there we will be to help. Wherever men succeed, there we will be to rejoice. We will not live with indifference to our times and fellows, but absorption in them, entering into every man's hopes and fears, longings and despairs. This means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives, binding ourselves to a thousand souls, so that their lives become ours. It means that all the experiences of men, just like the experience of the people in slavery in Egypt did to the Lord, that the experiences of men should smite our souls and beat and batter these stubborn hearts into fitness for their heavenly home.
See, the reality, when, when the reality of God's coming near to you in Jesus becomes real to your heart, what B.B. Warfield is saying is that it'll make you a person who offers the gift and the ministry of presence to other people. And that's the direction Christmas would take us. Okay? And so as we continue to think about that, let's pray and come to this table this morning. Can we do that? Let's pray. Father, meet with us around this table, as you promised to do. This is a place of, of, of meeting between you and your people. We uh, invite people over to our houses to have dinner with them because we want a relationship with them. We want to have conversation with them. We want to spend time with them. And in, in the same way, you gather your people around this table because you long to meet with us and be with us and speak to us and, and reveal yourself to us and have intimacy with us. And so I pray that as we come now to this meal, that that would be exactly what would happen. And I pray it. In Jesus' name, amen. The coming of God down from heaven to earth, the coming of God near to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, led to his death and ultimately to his resurrection, and that is exactly what we celebrate here at this table. The coming down of God is the sign of his love and his commitment to not forsake us, to not abandon us, but to come to us at our place of need and to rescue us and to bring us out, to come to us and to free us from the chains of our slavery to sin, and to renew our hearts that we might be people who find the freedom and the joy of worshiping and serving him with all of our heart and soul and strength. This is, he is, remember I said he is the fuel you're made to burn, he is the food you're made to consume, and here he offers, us, offers himself to us as just that, as food, spiritual food, for our lives as we seek to overcome and to, be, um, and to be set free from the things that so easily bind us. And so come to this table this morning uh, to celebrate his provision for you uh, and ask for him to come and meet with you. Amen. Amen. The good news of Christmas is that uh, where sin or sadness, darkness or gloom uh, might feel as if it has its grip on you, as if you're chained to it. Uh, joy to the world, the Lord has come. And he has come not only to, 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 to deliver us, but he's come to make himself known to us. He's come uh, to be with us. He is Emmanuel. And that is, that is the, the healing balm for whatever ails you. And so receive the promise of the benediction that the Lord will be with you, to bless you to take care of you. That's the promise uh, of the baby born in a manger in Bethlehem. Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.